Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. Hello. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Ashok Raju. Ashok is the Chief Operating Officer of VR Group, an alternative asset manager focused on distressed securities and special situations investments in emerging markets. Ashok joined VR Group in 2010 initially to create the firm's client-facing efforts before becoming the COO, where he now oversees operations, analytics, and business development. Ashok began his career in equity research at Deutsche Bank and spent time at a multifamily office where he covered hedge fund and public equity investments. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ashok. He's the first guest on the podcast to oversee both internal operations and client relationships. This perspective is an interesting and common one for small to medium organizations, and his insights are valuable for anyone beginning client-facing efforts or overseeing fund operations, or both. He's a wealth of information for younger professionals navigating their own careers in financial services, and I especially love his concept of the friend mentor, or what he calls friend tours. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Ashok Raju. Ashok, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate the opportunity. I'd love to go back a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about your background. My parents immigrated from India via the UK to, of all places, Morgantown, West Virginia. My father is a physician by background and has been practicing medicine there for over 40 years. And my mom was the person who managed this practice a quintessential immigrant story in that they came to this country with education, but not much else. And I think that was very informative and impactful for my sister and me as we've moved on into our adult lives. I think it's also worth noting that I had no exposure whatsoever to finance markets, let alone the investment business growing up and even really through the majority of my college education. I ultimately ended up going to the University of Notre Dame for college, which was an incredible experience. I, like most good South Asian boys, was planning to become a doctor. So I studied pre-med along with history and was also a member of the varsity men's tennis team. Thanks to some incredible advice and encouragement from some mentors, both on campus as well as who I like to call friend tours, really peers of mine who 
were more knowledgeable than I was about certain fields and certain career aspirations and had the ability to impart some wisdom on me to say, hey, you might actually have a chance at getting a job at a Wall Street firm or an asset manager or something in financial services because there's a wide range of backgrounds that people come from and enter into that field. And there is no set formula And so in doing that, I took every interview that I could with investment banks, asset managers, et cetera, and ultimately was given an opportunity to join Deutsche Bank in their analyst program. How did you figure out this is where you're going to go? There was a fairly healthy campus recruiting effort. I was coming out of school during the teeth of the NASDAQ sell-off in the early 2000s. And so as a result, there were offers being pulled, firms that had initially planned to come to campus no longer coming to campus, analyst classes getting slashed in half, start dates being pushed out, all of the kinds of things that probably would resonate for folks that came out of school in the 2008-9 timeframe. Not really knowing anything about how investment banks work and what they do and all of that was both a blessing and a curse. From a curse standpoint, it means I was clearly going to be behind the folks that I was competing with for those spots. From a blessing standpoint is I was very open to really doing just about anything. But what I certainly leaned towards was roles where I would have an opportunity to learn proper fundamentals, skills, and analytical capabilities that would then provide a very sound foundation for whatever I wanted to do in the rest of my career. What happened when you went home and told your parents that you were going to New York? (laughs) Yeah, they were the right blend of apprehensive and wishful about my ability to succeed. I had always been fairly independent. I had an opportunity at a very early age, for example, to go to a tennis academy in Florida, which was an atypical and certainly a risk-taking thing to do at the age of 14. I suppose I had primed my parents for the fact that I was maybe going to take a little bit of a different path and try to, to see what I could do in the big city. I look at equity research today versus when you started. Has there been a lot of evolution there? I would say that it has been, unfortunately, marginalized to an extent. And that's really because of the resources available to buy-side investors, the increase in the use of third-party for-pay research firms and expert networks, the availability of data, both in the form of first-order data as well as alternative data to the incredible investment organizations across both real money as well as the alternative space, hedge funds, et cetera. And so equity research is probably today much less about the actual recommendations or the assessment that that senior analyst or team have about a particular business and more about data points that are perhaps not available in some of those other arenas. And I'm saying not in a nefarious MNPI context, but in a, wow, this particular senior analyst has been covering this sector for 15, 20, 25 years. He or she knows every single CEO and every single company intimately well. There are insights that can be garnered from that kind of experience. And that knowledge transfer to the buy side is an area where I think there is still quite a bit of value. Number two would invariably be corporate access in terms of the relationships that those sell-side folks have with companies that are public and being able to facilitate small group discussions, one-on-ones with their client base in order to add value in a different way. 
my assessment of that is those would be two main areas that remain from 20 plus years ago. But I think the idea that there's star analysts that make calls that are completely unknown and companies that are being discovered and imparting that wisdom on the buy side, I would think that those days are in the past. How long were you at DB? Yeah, I was at Deutsche Bank for just about three years. The role at Deutsche Bank was fantastic, not only from a foundational perspective, but also, again, from a relationship perspective. And I think that's a thread that I would weave through my career. And having started in a large analyst class and building those relationships very early on has been immeasurable in value for me, both in terms of just what have now basically become lifelong friendships, but also in terms of folks that we do business with here at VR or people that we can call on for opportunities or ways to just interact in a different intersection of personal and professional. So in going to the exploration of buy-side opportunities, I was introduced to an organization that was growing up as a multifamily office where the mandate for the organization was quite broad, given the nature of the founding families and the capital that they provided, as well as the creativity and thoughtfulness of the senior investment and leadership team there. And so there was an opportunity to join that team fairly early on and be a part principally of the public investing team, but where we would have an opportunity to really look at everything from direct public investments, as well as some private and co-investments, as well as learn from and build relationships with the most talented investment managers out there because a big part of our business was allocating capital to outside managers. Through the allocating to external managers while you're also looking at stuff on the public side for yourself, there must have been a great deal of idea generation to actually go on the long side. Very much so. And a lot of credit here goes to one of my very dear friends and mentors and our CIO at the time, who the idea of creating a best ideas portfolio based off of managers with whom we had relationships or knew very well and could leverage off of the ideas that they had in their portfolios to then increase exposure directly to high conviction ideas was something that we worked on for quite a while. And again, this is all before the really easy to use 13F screening tools and all of the publicly available information around that today. We really just went off a combination of knowing great managers from our asset allocation side of the business and the work that we felt we were equipped to do from an individual fundamental analysis company by company and stock basis in order to decide if there were investments that we wanted to put on ourselves. What time frame was this? It was really 2005, 2006 when we were most active in this best ideas direct portfolio. And then the role for me and the firm's growth overall began to really take off in terms of manager selection and allocating capital to outside managers. So as a result, that became much more of my principal responsibilities, ultimately culminating in becoming what was effectively a portfolio manager of several of our multi-manager portfolios. Being there for a couple of years, and then that led us up into an interesting time, <laughs> 2007, 2008. What was that like? Challenging to say the least. There were no doubt aspects of it that we were able to capitalize on in 2007 in having exposure to managers and having some of the 
shorts and hedges that worked out quite well in 2007. But admittedly, it was massively overwhelmed by the difficulty of 2008. And we learned an awful lot about counterparty risk, prime brokerage, adjacency risk with other LPs, hidden leverage that managers were employing, as well as just the seemingly unprecedented way that correlation can happen across what is supposed to be highly diversified, uncorrelated portfolio. It was very humbling, no doubt. For me personally, it was also a very interesting time in life. I'd just gotten married. My wife was away at business school. And so we were dealing with a lot of interesting things idiosyncratically to us at the same time, but no doubt a very seminal and critical moment of anyone's career. And during that time, obviously agency risk is a big impact to your success or failure on that. The organization shift in any way to revisit how they interacted with that mix of external versus internal? Yeah, we decided to move towards winding down the internally managed exposures. That was less about how they had performed vis-a-vis our external manager portfolios or less about there being any conflict or challenges around that, but more about let's make sure we don't have distractions and focus on what is the core of our business, which was a multi-asset class endowment style, principally allocating capital to outside managers business. And then separately, We also move to focus and concentrate our portfolios more as and when we could. And that did not come without our fair share of mistakes. And those mistakes may have been in manager selection, in portfolio construction, and in risk management on our side, which really is in a lot of ways the other side of the coin of portfolio construction. And so a lot of lessons learned from that. And where do you go after that? I always envisioned that my initial sell-side research career would lead to a stock-picking job on the buy side, which would ultimately lead to a portfolio manager job. And so I spent quite a bit of time exploring the idea of moving to the GP side, but in an investing role. And was flagged to me by one of the portfolio managers who I was interviewing with, who said to me, I'm pretty sure you have the chops to join our investment team. You're a little rusty. It's been a while since you've modeled companies the way we do, and it's going to take some time to get up to speed. However, have you ever thought about the non-investment side of the business, and in particular, IR? Because if that's what you want to do, I would hire you yesterday. I really, really appreciate that conversation because it opened my eyes to say, could this be that inflection point in my professional life where I had admittedly resisted the urge to move too far away from the analytical, fundamental investing and technical side of the business. And it took a few friends and mentors proverbially smacking me in the face saying, dude, you should be on that path. We've been telling you for a long time there's some things that you're pretty good at, but I think there's only a couple of things that you can be great at, that you can be uniquely qualified to go do. And that area of the investment business, that's probably it. Timing, circumstance, opportunity, role, culture of the firms, et cetera, makes all the difference in the world. So I was fortunate to have a mentor introduce and connect me to VR. It was admittedly a bit delicate because VR 
was an investee of ours at my prior firm. We thought incredibly highly of the organization from an investment perspective and from a team standpoint. And so we had to do it on an arm's length basis, if you will. Once we started to have conversations, it very quickly became evident that there was an opportunity here for VR to fill a seat that they felt was critically important. For me to move into the area that I thought I could do for a very long time, and just as importantly, have a lot of white space ultimately to figure out what that might hold over time. And so in 2010, I joined the firm initially as our head of IR and business development. And then things have obviously evolved quite a bit since then. How difficult was it to do that, leaving something that you've been doing a long time? Because it's really hard to actually jump back in once you've made that move. I was very trepid about the idea of one, moving from a more stable, multi-manager, multi-asset class business that's inherently going to have a level of stability to it, to a single manager where you are definitely made or broken by the performance of that business and that team. And just as importantly, and, and again, I'll be particularly frank about this, the ego in me and the pride in me to be moving from the investment side to the non-investment side and how that would feel And would I still be viewed as someone who was no longer as deep or as technical or as analytical was another mental hurdle that I needed to get past. And so that was really the biggest aspects of getting my head around how I could do that. I think going back to first principles, the foundation and the credibility that I believed I would build over time once I got to know the VR business very well um, would shine again. It was just going to take a little bit of time and there was a natural J curve to that like there would be in any role. And tell me more about what VR is and where they're investing. VR is a approximately $5.5 billion global distressed and event-driven firm. We're probably best known for our investments in many emerging markets. We have been active investors in many pockets of Eastern Europe, Latin America, as well as Southeast Asia and the Middle East, and particularly in demerging markets, oftentimes countries that may have been perceived as developed at points in time, but have had to endure macroeconomic crises, currency devaluations, et cetera, that have led to opportunities from a distressed perspective. We tend to invest across the capital stack, but we're principally investing in sovereign, sub-sovereign, and corporate debt in these geographies. The sad reality of a lot of distressed, particularly in emerging markets, but it happens in sectors and developed markets as well, is that It's not uncommon for countries or companies or sectors to never fully shed themselves of their challenges from a debt perspective or otherwise. And so invariably, we end up being able to revisit places, countries, sectors that we've invested in before when they become distressed again. Are there any operational complexities with going to these far-flung places? Very much can be so. We tend to focus on hard currency debt. So one, first and foremost, we most often do not take first order currency risk. So that does eliminate some aspects of operational risk related to restricted currencies and capital controls and things of that nature. That being said, of course, we still have to deal with issues like that, including having 
local bank accounts and local counterparties who can provide that support for securities or currencies that can't be held in more classic financial institutions. Number two would be the jurisdiction under which a lot of the securities that we invest in are governed. Again, the majority of what we do tends to be foreign law in nature, so usually New York law or UK law, which allows, again, for there to be some degree of understanding of how a restructuring process or how the rules of the game should be played. That being said, again, there are many exceptions to that where the actors in these countries, uh, either a sovereign or sub-sovereign or corporate or family, if it's a family-controlled or owned business, are going to make that difficult. And so you have to be prepared to engage and be creative about ways to solve for or around such issues like that. And going back to the origins of VR, when Richard founded the firm in late 1998, our original office was in Moscow. We've had offices in the Middle East. We, in more recent years, have become maybe a bit more typical in having principal presence in London and New York with two members of our investment team in Argentina. So when you're entering these different jurisdictions, what's that first phone call that you make? It's very much iterative over time. But there's an element of our strategy that one might say is reactive to these opportunities. So a country or a sector or a region endures some kind of macroeconomic crisis or some kind of dislocation that leads to securities prices trading at very deep discounts. Now, whether that discount is warranted or not, that's for us to figure out once we start to do our work. But it can be oftentimes doing as much desktop work to see, is this something that passes the sniff test as interesting? Is it analyzable? And if so, what do we need to do in order to get comfortable enough to put some capital to work? And is it scalable? Is this something that we could develop enough edge to put a lot of capital to work? But there is no doubt that boots on the ground is a critical element, starting with all the members of our investment team travel extensively to the places where we invest in order to get as full of a picture as we can about that situation. And so through those travels and through that network, we will build relationships with law firms, consultants, macroeconomists that might or might not be attached to a financial institution, and other participants in those markets, local investors, and build really an entire flywheel of a network that'll allow us to call whoever we need to call when the next shoe drops or help us solve problems. And so knowing these countries, knowing these companies, knowing these sectors is something that, again, I give an immense amount of credit to our investment team for building those relationships up front, but then revisiting them, fostering them, and growing them over time so that we either can call more or less whoever we want in those places, and also that we're going to receive calls as well in terms of new opportunities that arise. So when you're at VR, so you were also initially charged with setting up the IR program. I'd love to hear more about that. We had been around for about 11 years We were on the order of about a billion dollars or so when I joined the firm. That was lower than we had been pre-crisis. But really the charge was, let's make sure we have as good of an understanding as we can about our existing investors. 
were they the right kinds of investors to remain with us? And if so, is there an opportunity to grow with those? However, because of the geographic split of where we were based, the nature of our investment strategy, we weren't nearly as well known to the institutional investor base. So it was really first and foremost about let's make sure we have a very good handle on the existing LPs and develop and deepen the relationships that we have with them. Then the second big piece was let's survey what would be the right investor types to begin with. And ultimately, from a bottoms up perspective, the right investor LP institutions or organizations whose tolerance for volatility, time horizon, sophistication, and ultimately willingness to partner made sense for a strategy like ours. We understood at that time, and still to an extent today, that we are not going to be the first stop for an investor who's allocating to alternatives for the first time. Most are not going to need a global distressed and event-driven manager who does a lot of work in emerging markets. They're probably going to be going to a long short equity fund or a more developed market credit fund or a macro fund, et cetera. My first calls in a lot of cases were to LPs with whom I had shared manager ideas with at my old firm or who we had done reference checks with one another on a particular GP that we were looking to invest with and wanted to get the story out that way. So it was intended to be very specific, strategic, and intentional rather than let's go market to everyone, let's go to every conference that we can go to and just spray and pray. There are merits to different approaches, but for us, that's what felt authentic to our investment strategy and our culture. What are the characteristics of a good LP in that type of volatile strategy? First and foremost is that tolerance for volatility and that willingness to be opportunistic about adding capital at times where it might seem or feel a little scary at that point in time. Number two would be very stable, long-term oriented LPs. There's an element of staying the course. As long as we, as your manager, have continued to do what we said we were going to do and haven't deviated from that, either stylistically or otherwise. And then the third thing I would say in terms of what make great LPs in that regard is ones who can make us better. So some of our favorite LP relationships are not the easiest conversations. They can be really tough. And we love that because they're tough because they push us to get better, particularly on the non-investment side. And that has been hugely valuable in terms of it being more than just a sizable check and a stable investor, because that's been where we can have a real two-way partnership with our investors. What are your thoughts on transparency and interaction? Like, obviously, this feels like a really high engagement relationship with you work with VR. Richard happens to be a fantastic writer. And so we have written since more or less the beginning of VR monthly letters. He has always done a wonderful job of not just providing context in where we made money, where we lost money, some interesting investments, but also providing a lot of context into what's going on in some of these situations, why we're involved, what could be coming down the pike, and less about what's going on in markets and things of that nature. And so I think that has provided our LPs with an awful lot of insight into what we've done, how we're thinking. And now it's this extensive library of letters now over 20 plus years 
that we can look back and really intellectually, honestly, and appropriately grade ourselves on what we said at the time and what we predicted or didn't predict. And I think that's only proven to be a better and better resource as far as transparency goes over time. Portfolio information, by virtue of writing a lot about our positions, we've always come from the standpoint of once something becomes either sizable in the portfolio or moves the needle positively or negatively from a performance standpoint, it should not come as a surprise. There should be an element of conditioning them over time. Third would be we have quarterly conference calls with our investors and they are open. And then through today, a lot of it was let's make sure we get the appropriate amount of credit for the things that we're already doing. So that's in the form of standard documentation like DDQs and all of our marketing materials, our fund documents, but also in the form of administrator transparency reports, providing ad hoc analyses that really give folks an insight into what we're thinking about and letting them in as much as is appropriate to be consistent across your LP base such that they have a very good sense of what we own, what we're doing, how we're thinking about it. There shouldn't be any surprises. And they have a very good sense for what the risks are ultimately. This is all really interesting. Now, tell us about what you're doing today. Initially joining VR, the mandate was really around the investor-facing related aspects of the role, both existing LPs and prospective LPs. There was a lot of white space to be able to take on projects or be able to get involved in things that were not necessarily part of my job description, but I felt like I had to figure stuff out and just be a problem solver and be the one who is rolling up his sleeves to execute on something. That was really paramount in setting the foundation to becoming our COO about five years ago. Examples of that were, we were in the midst right when I joined of transitioning administrators. We understood that we needed to evolve some of our service provider relationships and be more blue chip in that regard. I was tasked to run that project with them. I had never picked an administrator before. I mean, all I had ever done was been an ingester of statements from administrators as an LP, but it was an opportunity to get really into the guts of what they do, why they're important. And the benefits of that process came to fruition many, many years later when I've been leading our operational due diligence discussions with our LPs. And so I have a pretty deep understanding now of not only what these service providers do, but why it's important to our LPs. And so that is one example, but I think there were a number of things that happened over time that led to the ability to step into the COOC. That segues into what my day looks like today and how I spend my time. I still spend a portion of my time on investor-related issues, particularly when they're a bit more strategic in nature, for example, contemplating a co-investment or when things are challenging during periods of drawdowns or where there happens to be a lot of activity in our portfolio as a result of macroeconomic or idiosyncratic events, a portion of the role. In becoming COO, I ultimately oversee our operations and analytics teams. It's really about generating ideas with them, ushering along projects, exploring service providers or different ways of doing things, and helping their teams develop, including all the way down to the most junior ranks of their team. When we have had turnover, I've tried to play a pretty integral role, not just for the teams that are ultimately part of my purview, but really all of our teams. 
And then lastly, there's still an investment aspect to what I do. It's around being close enough to our investment team and our investment portfolio that there are opportunities to connect a member of our investment team with a peer who's involved in the same name or has been looking at that situation mentoring and helping develop members of our investment team, particularly those who joined us earlier stages in their career where I've already been here for some time and help them be a sounding board off the investment team where they can perhaps be a little bit more candid with questions and things that they're thinking about. And from time to time, even standing in for members of our investment team at conferences or meetings or things of that nature, which allows me to still scratch that itch of being a direct investor and remaining close to our investment portfolio spending time on all of that. It's a lot of fun to explore, have a meaningful seat at that table. How do you manage expectations in-house? It's a great question. Early days, it was a lot of transparency about who we're meeting with, how many times we met with them, what stage we're in, why we're meeting with them for the third or fourth or fifth time, and what this relationship could mean if we are to close. And that was a big thing for the trust that Richard and I had in one another. And then on the business side, the age range of the folks on our team now warrants a different level of communication and attachment to the mission. And I think that's a good thing because it pushes myself and folks that are maybe more senior than me in the business to say, we need to not just help them understand what we're doing, but why we're doing it. Why is this important? And I think that has been a big lesson in expectations management because we know that the Gen Zs, the younger millennials, compensation is one thing, non-economic benefits are another, but there's got to be an attachment to what we're trying to do. And I think that's been a good lesson in managing their expectations. You've really talked about the distinction of sales, IR, marketing, and how every organization is a little bit different. I'd love to get your perspective on that and how it plays out at VR. I think if you ask 10 different organizations, you'll get 12 different answers to that question. It varies a lot on the size of the organization, culture of the organization from a business building standpoint. And then you take what those two things are, and then you want to have the right people in those roles in order to be successful. Let the system and the process govern who the right people are for the role, and then you know, try to marry it all together. Having been the first person who sat in that seat, we never distinguished really between sales slash marketing or investor relations slash product specialist. What we wanted to do was combine those such that the individuals who were investor-facing had very deep relationships with existing investors, as well as understood the portfolio at a very granular level in order to be really an extension of our investment team, as well as the same folks who could build relationships with prospective investors over time and really usher them through the entire due diligence process such that if we were fortunate enough for them to and trust us with their capital, that it would be the same people that they would be interacting with at that point in time. Now, I can appreciate that for organizations that are larger, that are multi-product in nature, multi-asset class in nature, that's not scalable. They're going to need a bifurcation between those. And I think for those organizations, that makes a lot of sense. And there could be a time in the future where I might be singing a different tune on that because we all have decided to evolve things in a way where that could be the case. Being a really great 
product specialist or IR person. I think it's critical to have a degree of gravitas with investors and an ability to communicate in a way that is authentic and not salesy. And similarly, I think the best folks that are proactively building relationships with investors and are more focused on capital raising than anything else, the ones that come from at least a product specialist background, if not even investing background or a trading background, there's no doubt they can be really, really effective because again, they can speak about the portfolio, about the business, about the strategy, about what's important at a very granular level. And if I'm hiring somebody where I'm interested in them actually bringing in new business, how do you know they can actually execute on that? A Rolodex in and of itself, I think those are greatly overvalued in the capital raising seats because that means you can make the call and maybe you can get a meeting, but I'm not so sure that that is going to be the reason the business is won or that person is obviously going to have the ability to win that business or to get that allocation or what have you. I think, again, it comes back to motivations and how someone is wired. There are folks who they are very outcome-oriented when it comes to winning. And as a result, I think those are folks that are going to be very hungry and incredibly incentivized. And this can be done, of course, through compensation structure to win that business. And then there's those who I think believe more in being process-oriented and want to go through the grind and want to be willing to be more patient about maybe not building the volume of relationships, but maybe focusing on quality. And different investment organizations, even the same investment organization for different roles or for different products or for different seats could value both of those things. It comes down again to what that person's motivated by. Are they set up for success by the organization? And if it's somebody who has a less than conventional approach to things, does the organization give that person enough room to operate in their way? Common thing that happens, you have a meeting, meeting ends. And somebody's like, that was a great meeting. And the other person's like, that's a terrible meeting. <laughs> Any guideposts that you would have on what is a good meeting? The guideposts are the ones that are oftentimes the most philosophical when it comes to approach. And this goes back to my comments earlier regarding some of our best LPs have been at times some of our toughest LPs because they are so perceptive when it comes to being told a first order or second order answer. They want to get to the guts of it very quickly. Wrapped around that might be granular portfolio information or a story of an investment that went well, didn't go well, etc. But usually it's more around, what were you guys thinking in that moment? How did you react to that challenge? What happens next time that happens? Who is making that decision and why? And those to me, when we're starting to get to that level of understanding, I think the best LPs really understand what makes us tick and they want to really know what makes our investment team tick. And I think as a result, the ones that have that dynamic, we usually walk out and say, that was a really good meeting. When there's a difference of opinion, it's usually where a member of our investment team might judge the quality of the meeting based on how detailed the investor got about a particular investment. Or they may say, oh, they didn't really seem that interested in this area. And sometimes I'll come back and say, well, actually, the way you answered that question or the way you laid out for them how we're thinking about it 
that's what they're getting at. They're not really that concerned about why we own this bond at 70 that's yielding 22% over the next three years and where we see it going. Yes, that's part of the story and that's good for them to know because they believe that that's an attractive allocation of capital. But it's much more about how we arrived at that, what we're doing to probability adjust the outcome there, and how we're going to continue to do that over time at scale. And so that can be also a difference of opinion, can be the lens through which someone's looking at those meetings and their level of familiarity with how LPs ask those questions. I want to talk a little bit about any career advice for those looking to get into the multitude of hats that you wear. Number one is this business for me has been a lot about relationships. It has been about building them, retaining them, fostering them. And that's been critical to not only the firms that I've worked for, but also to me at the intersection between professional and personal life. And so whatever someone can do to keep that at the forefront of their minds in a genuine I want to give more than I'm asking for. More specifically, there is no prescribed path or no formula to becoming a COO or something like it. They come from such a wide range of backgrounds. You have folks that grow up in the finance or accounting side. You have folks that grow up in legal and compliance. You have folks that grow up in risk and trading. You have ones that grow up in investments and you have ones that grow up in investor-facing roles. And as I've talked about, I'm a combination of a couple of those things. For me, growing up on the investment side and the research side has been of critical importance because not only does it give you an appreciation for and an understanding of the investment process and what people care about when they're thinking about allocating capital or taking risk on a direct basis, but it also allows me to think through what does the business need at the end of the day, in order for our investment team to be as successful as they can be. And that's where we all have to remember that we're in a role where we are serving something greater than just the non-investment operations of this business. The principal goals are investment-oriented. They are risk-taking in nature. And so to the extent that we can do everything we can to support that greater cause, that's, I think, really important. To put it this way, Every Michael Jordan needs a Scottie Pippen or a Horace Grant. That's where we are trying to be. You take those two guys or a group of three that have existed in sports since the beginning of time, it's very symbiotic, it's codependent, and they've made each other better. The last thing I would just say, patience and staying the course, in my case, has been massively beneficial. There is a propensity for some members of the younger generations, I think, to sometimes move quickly, but for the wrong reasons. And so I think it's important to not get too distracted by the shiny object and make sure you unpack and think deeply about all the reasons for moving and make sure you understand and think long and hard about not just why I'm making this move now, but what does this look like two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? Because it is easy to get lured by the immediate 12, 18, 24 months and lose the forest from the trees a bit. Any advice for working with investment-oriented founders? Yeah. No one person can be all things to what an organization needs. And you have to appreciate the fact that you're in service of something bigger. 
and you are in that role where you're doing everything you can to allow others to be as successful as they can be. And it doesn't mean that Scottie Pippen wasn't a phenomenal player in his own right. Of course he was, but he was made better by the situation. It's also important, I think, to appreciate that there will be times where the investment side of the organization is really charging and driving and firing on all cylinders. And the non-investment side of the organization is just trying to keep up and just trying to be enough so that it doesn't hold back the investment side from doing what they want to do. A trust between the two sides or the leadership on both sides is critically important in that regard because there will also be the other times as well where the investment engine is struggling and it's paramount that the non-investment side of the organization continues to grind and continues to move things forward to the extent it makes sense in order for the setup to be there and the stability to be there and the consistency to be there so that when the investment side gets its mojo back, there'll be an opportunity to get back to the type of success that you are working towards. We talked about mentors and you'd also mentioned friend tours. Tell me more about what that means to you. What I've found by virtue of both early on as well as now is that the relationships we have because we grew up together in the business may have branched off and done different things, but they bring a different perspective to the table because they're not living my role or my life or my challenges, but know me both professionally and personally intimately well. They can provide a level of insight and a level of guidance and a level of pushing and questioning that a mentor that you might see once a quarter or twice a year might not be able to do because they may not have the context from very early on. It's oddly enough easier for them to push back because of the peer-to-peer relationship and easier for me to absorb because oftentimes we're at similar stages of life. So that's what I call friend tours because I think some of them would laugh if I said that they were a mentor when they might be a little bit older than me, my age or younger than me, but I think that's that dynamic. That's great. We like to wrap with two questions. And the first question I have for you, what is the one book or other resource that you recommend to others in the business? On the books front, I have often recommended How Will You Measure Your Life by Professor Clay Christensen from Harvard Business School. It's a terrific book that touches on a lot of the things that we talked about today in terms of the intersection between professional and personal life and gives one a lot to reflect on, particularly if you're thinking about making a transition or an interesting inflection point in your career. Fantastic. And the last question I have is, what advice would you give an emerging manager from an operations perspective? You got to establish your North Star and your first principles. Why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? What kind of firm and culture are we trying to build? I think you've got to answer those questions. doesn't mean it needs to be a perfect answer. It doesn't mean that it can't change over time. But I think that is a really important area of things to unpack in order to really get to the heart of the motivations, the interests, and I think it'll be very informative for what that culture is going to be and what that business is going to look like over time. Number two would be, be willing to partner with the right kind of LPs, particularly for the strategy. And even if that means turning away capital, if it's not the right capital, the right partnership, 
and or being willing to be patient that it could take longer to grow to the extent a manager can deal with that extension period and work it out economically. Because in the fullness of time, I think it'll be the right approach. It'll foster better and longer relationships. And then the last thing I would just say is to think long and hard about insourcing versus outsourcing, buy versus build, especially early on, because that's also going to evolve over the life cycle of a fund manager, depending again on the strategy, the approach, LP demands, regulators, et cetera. But there's more likely than not going to be a belly curve of insourcing versus outsourcing, where there might be a lot of outsourcing at the beginning. There will be some degree of insourcing through the belly, And then there might be, for really large firms, as we've seen, more outsourcing at the end where you're almost spinning off a business in order to provide that service to a bunch of other organizations as well. But I think to have an idea of what that should look like up front and have a plan, but also be open-minded about how that plan can change is critical from a business building and operational standpoint. Ashok, there's been so many insights. We've covered a lot of territory and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it as well. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.